down is about the erosion of American democracy and the subversion of our most basic governmental norms. From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. On today's show, this week's debut speech on the floor of Congress by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York broke records for a C-SPAN on Twitter. We'll hear those remarks from AOC and what more freshman members of Congress had to say about the government shutdown. If this president and Senate Republicans truly cared about security, they would want to fund the Coast Guard and they would want to fund air traffic controllers and they would want to fund TSA agents at our airports. In the second half, a new book by Michael Fishbach digs into the roots of African-American Palestinian solidarity. For blacks, Palestine was a kindred country of color struggling to be free from occupation as they were. This conceptualization, by the way, implies that if African-Americans and Palestinians are of color, then their oppressors, conversely, are white. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And this show is the last of three devoting a full hour to unheard voices. Here are newly elected members of the House of Representatives, at least some of them, if not all of them, giving their first speeches on the floor of Congress, starting with Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. Madam Speaker, I rise today to take a moment as we honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., his 90th birthday yesterday, and we continue to honor him throughout this week and next Monday. During this time, we recognize that we are in a society that is still riddled with injustices. As representatives, we have a duty to lift up those who are marginalized and work to ensure that we continue a path towards justice for every person. No person should ever feel less than in the United States of America. May we remember his legacy and his words to recommit to fighting for justice and equality. May we also speak out loudly and unapologetically about the ills of our society and work every single day to stay on the right side of justice. Madam Speaker, on the regards to the government shutdown, I'm very passionate about making sure that we put a human face to this crisis. So I rise today during the 26th day of this reckless government shutdown. The real crisis here is the negative human impact. In the homes of each of the federal workers across this nation, nearly a month without pay. Our federal workers are having to go to pawn shops to get cash to live. This is not right. Yes, there's a crisis for the families in my district who have corporate polluters today in their backyards that do not have any EPA inspectors monitoring our air quality. Yes, there's a crisis for the families who are wondering if their housing assistance will come next month from HUD. The shutdown will have a long-lasting negative impact on our lives, and it must end immediately. Madam Speaker, I'd like to take, a, take some time today to share stories about residents in Michigan who are impacted directly. Gregory Simpkins, who's president of the American Federation of Government Employees, Local 778, said four of the union's TSA employees quit last week, and three the week before. Right now, TSA employees are deemed essential and still going to work, but are not getting paid. Ms. Wilson, 
One of our TSA employees said the morale is so low, she's never seen anything like it. With personal budget stretched, she's afraid they will lose even more workers. One worker said to her that he can't pay for gas money to get to work, and he's worried and scared for the future of his family and for his life. Federal environmental protection workers right now are not at work protecting us. So when I think of this, I think of line five, which is a very dangerous pipeline, oil pipeline that threatens drinking water supply for Michiganders and our fresh water in the Great Lakes. We are in trouble, Madam Speaker, because the computers that run that model for emergency response is shut down during this crisis. Mark Correll, president of the American Federation of Government Employees, Local 3907, represents EPA workers who work on the motor vehicle emissions laboratories in Ann Arbor, Michigan. He and his colleagues are furloughed, meaning they are not working right now and not getting their pay. And for the public, this means they're not working on regulations that are now lagging because they're not showing up. Their lab certifies fuel efficiency numbers automakers display when selling cars to ensure that they protect our air quality and abide by the emission standards. So, Madam Speaker, this is reckless and irresponsible. It is reckless that Mitch McConnell's Senate cannot muster up the courage to reopen the government. Senator McConnell works for the American people. He has been missing in action during this crisis. He doesn't work for the President of the United States. He works for the American people. And I ask him to stand up and do what's right for all of us and for our nation and open up government. Thank you, Madam Speaker. And I yield my time to the gentlewoman from Minnesota, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Thank you. Madam Speaker, I rise today to mark the 26th day of what is now the longest running government shutdown in history. A shutdown which is nothing more than a manufactured crisis designed to distract us from the instability and dysfunction that rules the Trump's White House. Trump has orchestrated this shutdown because he's looking for someone else to blame for the ineffectiveness of his administration. He wants to point to us here in Congress and claim that we are the reason he's failing to lead this country. But that blame, Madam Speaker, belongs to Trump and Trump only. He single-handedly forced seven agencies to stop their crucial work, work that impacts the health and safety of every American. Soon, millions of people could start to go hungry as the government runs out of money to fund nutritional assistance through the SNAP program. Thousands could face eviction and become homeless as HUT becomes unable to deliver desperately needed housing assistance. Federal courts could shut down. Our aviation system could come to a halt as flights are grounded. And the list, Madam Speaker, goes on and on. But even before this shameful shutdown began, 
the executive branch agencies were already struggling to operate under Trump's leadership or the lack thereof. As of today, there are more than 200 critical agencies, positions for which Trump has failed to even put forward a nominee. That's more than 200 agencies, offices, and resources that are operating without a defined leadership, full of staff, or resources. Consequently, even once we are able to end this debilitating shutdown, our federal government will still be operating at less than full capacity, so long as we have an ineffective, ego-driven president at the home. As a member of Congress, we took an oath to put the people of this country first, to protect their right, safety, and well-being. That's we are here in the House, voted on day one of this Congress, and nearly every day since, to reopen this government. The President took a similar oath, and it is time that he honor it. Because, Madam Speaker, the American people deserve better. The 400,000 furloughed federal employees deserve better, including the 6,000 workers in my district alone who are currently wondering how they are going to pay their rent at the first of the month and if they are able to afford simple necessities like childcare and food deserve better. If the president wants to have a real conversation about border security, we are ready to have it. We can talk about finding a solution to our broken immigration system and how to adopt policies that extend humanity and compassion to migrants and refugees. Every day, Families are fleeing violence and untold hardships in countries like Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. These people are running from situations that are so brutal that most Americans thankfully cannot comprehend. But as a refugee from Somalia, I do. So I invite the President to engage in a real conversation with Congress on immigration. If he wants, we can talk about the $2 million the Guatemala government paid to DC lobbyists and how the, our government is cozying up to corrupt regimes in that country. If he is interested, we could also talk about the US funding and training for Honduras security forces that are involved in serious human rights violations and how these policies that we support are forcing people to flee from their homeland. If he wants to talk, we are ready to talk. But we don't need government shutdown to do it. I join the similar calls made by my colleagues today, and I demand that the President end his temper tantrums 
and quest for a racist and xenophobic wall. And I demand that he work with us to reopen the government before any more damage is done. Enough is enough. The American people deserve better. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I yield back. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I yield to the gentlewoman from Bronx, New York, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Today I rise to tell the story of one of my constituents, Yahi Obed. Mr. Obed was born in Yemen and came to the United States when he was eight years old. His childhood dream was to become a pilot, and he knew and felt that in the United States all things are possible, and his dream could come true. Mr. Obed's dream did come true. He's been a federal employee for 14 years, has two children, and a mortgage for his home in the Morris Park neighborhood of the Bronx. He studied hard, got his pilot's license, and is now an air traffic controller supervisor at John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York City. I spoke with Mr. Obed today over the phone. He and air traffic controllers like him across the country missed their first paycheck this past week. He was telling me about how stressful his job is. Every single day, air traffic controllers have thousands of people's lives in their hands. With weather changes, flight delays, staffing complexities, and a myriad of other issues, their days almost never go exactly to plan. His job is to find solutions, analyze and adapt in real time to keep people safe in one of the busiest airspaces in the United States and the world. And it is terrifying to think that almost every single air traffic controller in the United States is currently distracted at work because they don't know when their next paycheck is coming. Federal workers' jobs are stressful enough. The rise in New York City's cost of living is stressful enough. The fact that Mr. Obed's family cannot be reunified due to fears over the Muslim ban is stressful enough. His several thousand dollar a month Bronx mortgage is stressful enough. The anti-immigrant sentiment of this administration is stressful enough. And the truth of this shutdown is that it's actually not about a wall. It is not about the border, and it is certainly not about the well-being of everyday Americans. The truth is, this shutdown is about the erosion of American democracy and the subversion of our most basic governmental norms. It is not normal to hold 800,000 workers' paychecks hostage. It is not normal to shut down the government when we don't get what we want. It is not normal for public servants to run away and hide from the public that they serve. And it is certainly not normal to starve the people we serve for a proposal that is wildly unpopular among the American people. Each and every member of this body has a responsibility to this nation and to everyone in the United States of America, whether they voted for us or not. And this president shares in that responsibility as well, which means he has a responsibility to my constituent, Mr. Obed.
President Trump has a responsibility to all air traffic controllers, FDA inspectors, TSA workers, and he has a responsibility to maintain the basic functioning of the United States government. Thank you very much. Madam Speaker, I yield my time. Thank you so much. Uh, Madam Speaker, I yield to the gentleman from California. On my first day in office, I joined Democrats and Republicans in voting to reopen the government and end this senseless and now record shutdown. And we have passed Republican legislation. Make no mistake, this is the same legislation that Senate Republicans supported just last month to fund the federal government. But instead of taking that legislation up for a vote, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans have joined President Trump in what can be best described as a temper tantrum. And as the father of a six-year-old and a four-year-old, occasionally I know something about a temper tantrum. Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans have joined President Trump in holding 800,000 federal workers hostage over a demand for an ineffective, wasteful wall, a fifth-century technology for a 21st-century problem. Don't get us wrong. Democrats continue to support strong, smart, effective border security solutions, including the following. First, we support new drug, weapons, and contraband scanning technology at official ports of entry. Installing new technology to eventually scan all commercial and passenger vehicles for illegal drugs and other contraband at our ports of entry. According to both CBP and DEA, 90% of heroin, 88% of cocaine, 87% of methamphetamine, and 80% of fentanyl being smuggled into the U.S. are seized at official ports of entry, not, not areas between the ports of entry where President Trump wants to build his wasteful border wall. Second, we support advanced technology to detect unauthorized crossings, cameras, sensors, and radar to spot moving people and objects in any weather or time of day that are mounted on towers and Border Patrol vehicles and on drones to surveil tough terrain. Third, we support more customs personnel filling the more than 3,000 vacancies for customs officers who facilitate trade and travel at our land, air, and sea ports of entry, inspect commercial and passenger vehicles for illegal drugs and other contraband, and ensure that travelers are vetted and screened before entering the United States. Fourth, we support expanded port of entry infrastructure, building up our port of entry infrastructure to improve security and better facilitate trade and travel ending the long delays for visitors and commercial shipments that cost our country billions in economic activity and thousands of jobs. We support all these measures, and we have for some time, and we will continue to support these measures, but we will not, not waste billions of taxpayer dollars on an ineffective, expensive wall that can be tunneled under, climbed over, or cut through, a wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for. A discussion about border security is no reason for President Trump to keep government shut down. And perhaps even more importantly, we cannot and must not allow this president or any president to hold our government and federal workers hostage every time we have a disagreement. Federal workers in the communities I serve in California are being directly hurt by this shutdown just as they're being hurt all across this country. 
I recently heard from a Fish and Wildlife Service employee whose co-workers don't know how they're going to pay their bills and make ends meet. I heard from members of the Coast Guard, and yes, the Coast Guard is being impacted by this shutdown because they're funded through the Department of Homeland Security. I heard from the Coast Guard, I heard from air traffic controllers, and they're being forced to work without pay. And this becomes a security issue. And if this president and Senate Republicans truly cared about security, they would want to fund the Coast Guard, and they would want to fund air traffic controllers, and they would want to fund TSA agents at our airports. I've heard from veterans. I have a huge number of veterans in our district, and one-third of the federal workforce consists of veterans, both federal employees and contractors, and they have been negatively impacted by this. So, Mr. President, you claim to care about veterans. How can you allow this to continue to hundreds of thousands of veterans who have served our country and who are working without pay? The solution that we Democrats support is simple. Let's reopen the government, and then, then we can talk about the best way to secure our border. Earlier today, I was honored to join some of my freshman colleagues in trying to deliver a letter to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, simply asking him on behalf of the freshman class to end this shutdown. We couldn't find him, but we'll keep at it. We've got to get this government back open again. We've got to get people back to work. Thank you very much. And I yield back. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I yield to the gentlewoman from California. Thank you. Huge critical elements of our federal government have now been shut down for 26 days. 800,000 blameless federal employees have already missed their paychecks, and they don't know when their next paychecks are coming. These furloughed workers are in crisis. They're facing impending loan defaults, utility shutoffs, long-term reductions in their credit scores, and potentially foreclosure or eviction proceedings. They are unable to buy necessities for themselves and their families, including necessary medications like insulin. About 42,000 of those federal workers are in my home state of California, and they are hurting. The costs of housing are a real challenge for families in my district, California's 45th. Thousands of Orange County residents rely on federal affordable housing programs to pay the rent each month. Nationwide, this shutdown has already forced the expiration of over 1,100 rental assistance contracts between the government and private landlords and developers. These housing units are at risk of being permanently removed from our affordable housing stock. In my district, California's 45th, the tenants of 70, 749 homes rely on the Department of Housing and Urban Development to help pay their monthly rent. Our local public housing authority distributes those funds to needy families. As required by law, 75% of these funds help applicants who are low income. Orange County's rental costs are the ninth highest in the country, averaging over $2,000 per month. The cost of living is entirely unaffordable for many tenants without this federal housing assistance. This past spring, 
Our Federal Reserve found that 40% of Americans, 4 in 10 Americans, don't have the cash to pay for an unexpected $400 expense without selling a belonging or borrowing funds. American workers cannot withstand the financial shock of going unpaid. For workers living paycheck to paycheck, this shutdown can easily spiral into bankruptcy. Even if we provide workers with back pay, which we have passed legislation to do, it will not make the harms of this shutdown erased. This government isn't paying for groceries or utilities or childcare. When the government reopens, it won't be paying the late fees that these workers have incurred in the meantime. It also won't pay the interest on new loans taken out by federal workers to try and make ends meet until the president chooses to put people over politics. These families will still have $30 late fees on credit card payments. They'll still have to pay interest on mortgage payments, which can be hundreds of dollars. They will still have delinquencies on their credit reports, which can drop their credit scores and stay on their records for up to seven years. That's why I've asked the major financial institutions of this country to step up and to provide relief to federal workers and their families who, through no fault of their own, have found themselves in financial distress. These banks and credit card companies should waive fees, pause debt payments, and stop eviction and foreclosure proceedings until weeks after workers receive their pay. Lenders should also stop reporting negative information to credit reporting agencies during this difficult time. Many of our nation's credit unions are offering 0% interest short-term loans to help furloughed workers. I've sent letters to all of the nation's largest lenders and have each day been meeting with representatives of the major banks, urging them to do more to help those affected by the shutdown. And I've been pleased with some of their responses. For example, Discover is allowing furloughed workers to use its existing disaster relief program to cope with the financial shock of going unpaid. This generous program halts all payments and prevents the imposition of late fees. Ally Financial has created a customer assistance program that offers help to those hurt by the shutdown. Ally is willing to refund transaction fees, to eliminate bounce check fees, to waive late charges, and to remove early withdrawal penalties on CDs and other savings accounts. Wells Fargo is waiving fees and pausing negative credit reporting, auto repossessions, and foreclosure proceedings for furloughed workers. I urge all lenders to contact our office to share what they are doing proactively to help customers, their customers, who are going unpaid through no fault of their own. I will continue to share with my colleagues what banks and lenders are doing so that they may do outreach to constituents in their districts who are being affected by the furlough. The damage this shutdown has caused and will continue to cause doesn't end there. Thousands of IRS employees have been furloughed because of the shutdown, which has delayed tax refunds and income verification processing. Without income verification documents, lenders may not be able to finance or refinance mortgages or other loans. 
for families experiencing recent financial hardship, access to refinance could be critical to helping them right themselves. These delays in tax processing are particularly harmful to low-income borrowers, filers, especially those who qualify for the earned income tax credit and the additional child tax credit. The EITC is one of our government's largest anti-poverty programs, and millions of taxpayers rely on tax refunds each year to catch up on bills, to pay off debts, and to fund items like delayed medical procedures. Understaffing will make it difficult for the IRS to answer taxpayer questions this year. This is the first year that taxpayers will be filing after the Republican tax law was implemented. And as a result of President Trump's tax law, Californians are for the first time in our country's history unable to deduct all of their state and local taxes. The elimination of this deduction is incredibly punitive to Californians in my district. And at this moment, Californians, who are about to owe more federal taxes than they did a year ago, don't have access to the federal government, to the IRS, to help them navigate this tax morass. From late January through March 2nd of 2018, the IRS paid out tax refunds totaling over one $147 billion to 48.5 million households. Californians submit more tax returns than any other state. For families expecting an average refund of about $3,000, this shutdown will have very real consequences. And if that weren't enough, the shutdown has also created an open season on the American consumer. Consumer protection websites run by agencies like the Federal Trade Commission and the Federal Communications Commission are closed due to lack of funding. The FTC maintains the national do not call registry. Consumers can't sign up and telemarketers can't check the updated lists. There is no one on the beat to enforce robocalling regulations. The FTC has also shut down its critical website, identitytheft.gov. In normal times, victims of identity theft can use this website to file a report and get the paperwork that they need to prove to banks and businesses that someone stole their identity. That website is no longer operating. I want to take a minute to speak directly to every American hurt in any way by this shutdown. Whether you're a federal employee or someone who relies for support on one of those employees, I encourage you to ask for help. This shutdown is not your fault, and you could not have predicted the longest shutdown in our history. I know how hard it is to ask for help, but do not let embarrassment prevent you from protecting your credit score and maintaining your financial well-being. And if you need more help, call my office. Until the president ends this shutdown, it'll be my priority in Congress to help all those who are being hurt by it. I yield my time to the Congresswoman from Michigan. Thank you so much. As you can see, there has been a huge challenge among the American people across the country. And in my district alone, I have the third poorest congressional district.
zip codes with the worst air quality in the, in the country. Many of the workers that are not showing up to work are directly providing critical services to our residents back home. And it's important for us to see beyond, obviously, the numbers of 800,000 workers. But what were they doing? What, how were they providing for the American people? How were they serving our nation? And for us to continue to be very focused on the fact that this is a huge crisis that needs to be addressed and that we need the leadership of the Senate to rise and to support the bills, the same ones we sent to them before our uh, January swear-in. They supported it then. I have no idea why they haven't been able to pass, again, the same exact bills they supported before we became the leaders in the majority in the, in the House. Thank you, Madam Speaker. And I, again, urge all of the Americans that are directly impacted by the shutdown to please reach out to us, seek out help. Uh, as our gentlewoman from California said, we are here to serve you. We are here to help you in any way that we can. Thank you so much. That was the voice of Representative Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and before her, Representative Katie Porter of California, Mark Levin of California, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, and Representative Tlaib at the top introducing the entire group. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, on Pacifica Radio. I'm Esther Averam. When we come back, what are some of the roots of African-American-Palestinian solidarity? Stay with us. Chill with my shoulders. I feel like I'm losing my focus. I feel like I'm losing my patience. I feel like my thoughts in the basement feel like I feel like you're miseducated. Feel like I don't wanna be bothered. I feel like you may be the problem. I feel like it ain't no tomorrow. F the world, the world is ending. I'm done pretending. If you, if you get offended, I feel like friends been overrated. I feel like the family been faking. I feel like the feelings are changing. Feel like my daughter compromised is jaded. Feel like you wanna screw and that's how I made it. Feel like I ain't feeling you all. Feel like removing myself, no feelings involved. I feel for you. I've been in the field for you, it's real for you, right? Shit, I feel like ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying for me. Ain't nobody praying. I feel it's been out of pocket. I feel it's tapping their pockets. I feel like debating on who the greatest can stop it I am legend, I feel like all of y'all is peasants I feel like all of y'all is desperate I feel like all it takes a second to feel like Mike Jordan whenever holding a real mic I ain't feeling your presence Feel like I'ma learn you a lesson Feel like only me and the music though I feel like you're feeling me mutual I feel like the enemy you should know Feel like the feeling of no hope The feeling of bad A quarter house manipulated from soap The feeling, the feeling of false freedom A false freedom to poison To fill them up in the prison I feel like it's just me, look I feel like I can't breathe, look I feel like I can't sleep, look I feel heartless, often, often Feeling the falling, I'm falling apart with darkest hours Lost in, feeling the void of being employed with balling Streets is talking, filling the blanks with coffins Fill up the banks with dollars, fill up the graves with fathers Fill up the babies with bullshit, the internet blogs and pulpit Filling with gossip, I feel like this gotta be the feeling where Pac was The feeling of an apocalypse happening but nothing is awkward The feeling won't prosper, the feeling is toxic I feel like I'm boxing demons, monsters, false prophets, scheming, sponsors Industry promises, 
Cause bitches honkies, crackers, Compton Church, religion, token, blacks and bondage Lawsuit visits, subpoena, served in concert your feelings, I mean this for imposters I can feel it, the phoenix, sure to watch us I can feel it, the dream is more than process I can build a regime that forms a likeness I can feel it, the scream that haunts our logic I feel like say something I feel like take something I feel like skating on I feel like waiting for Maybe it's too late for him. I feel like the whole world want me to pray for him But who's praying for me? Ain't nobody praying for me My name is Mohammed Mohammed. I'm the director here at the Jerusalem Fund uh, and Palestine Center. It's also a, a great honor to introduce and welcome back our distinguished speaker today, Michael Fishbach, who will be speaking about his latest book called Black Power in Palestine, Transnational Countries of Color. The 1967 Arab-Israeli War rocketed the question of Israel and Palestine onto the front pages of American newspapers. Black power activists saw Palestinians as a kindred people of color, waging the same struggle for freedom and justice as themselves. Uh, soon, concerns over the Arab-Israeli conflict spread across mainstream black politics and into the heart of the civil rights movement itself. Black power in Palestine uncovers why so many African Americans, uh, notably uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and Muhammad Ali, among others, who came to support the Palestinians or felt the need to respond to those who did. Please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Dr. Michael Fishbach. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'd like to thank um, Muhammad uh, as well as Samir al-Qasim for uh, arranging me to come here. African Americans were very keen observers of the Arab-Israeli conflict in the 60s and 70s and interpreted it in ways that related to their own lives and priorities at home. Much has been written about the black freedom struggle, yet black Americans' connection to the Middle East and the ways it affected them and their conceptualization of identity and agency mostly have been overlooked. Who today remembers that famous black activists like Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and Jesse Jackson visited parts of Arab Palestine and issued public pronouncements on the conflict. Militants from the Black Panther Party, ministers from various Christian denominations, black congressional representatives, even the boxer Muhammad Ali, all visited the Arab world as well during that tumultuous period of time and met with Palestinians from all walks of life, including PLO Chair Yasser Arafat. Important black political conferences issued statements on Israel and the Palestinians. And black men and women of letters, like those in the black arts movement, highlighted Middle East issues in their poetry and prose. Now, given the high-profile na nature of the conflict after the June 67 war put it so squarely in the world's newspapers, it should come as no surprise that both militant blacks and more conservative civil rights leaders both found themselves drawn into taking stands on that distant conflict. And it was not simply because this conflict was so much in the headlines, but also because it had tremendous resonance with regard to African Americans' respective agendas and understandings of how black identity and black political activity should be expressed in America. 
Indeed, the truth is that black arguments over whether to support Israel or the Palestinians mirrored much deeper intra-black debates about race, identity, and political action in the 60s and 70s. And those discussions ended up symbiotically affecting both them and the people of the faraway Middle East. Because how to approach the Arab-Israeli conflict became then much more than just a tertiary sideshow to more important matters that were facing Americans of African descent at that time. With the result, as I said, that black advocacy for one side or the other in the conflict ended up deeply affecting not just them, but the wider American society. On their part, black power militants issued the first significant pro-Palestinian viewpoints ever to reach a large audience of Americans. Because stemming from their internationalist anti-imperialism, black power militants latched onto the Palestinian cause as a liberation struggle being waged by a kindred people of color that was eminently deserving of their support. They saw themselves and the Palestinians waging a revolution against a global system of oppression. Given that the black power movement in many ways threatened their vision of the multiracial beloved community of Christians and Jews united for justice, it comes as no surprise that on the other hand, mainstream civil rights advocates quickly countered by lining up fairly solidly behind Israel. That was a safer, more traditional, inside-the-system attitude that reflected their overall more conservative vision of black identity and more conservative vision of wider politics. Change the system. Do not seek to overthrow it. And so that's why this whole issue became of such importance in intra-black discussions. It was not merely because they held different perspectives, but also because it became a crucially important reference point by which they created and articulated their respective visions of identity, place, and struggle. So today I'd like to explore this topic with you by first doing um, a little explaining about how I, as someone who has studied and written a lot about very technical issues of land and land ownership and property and compensation in the Middle East, came upon this very American history-oriented topic. And secondly, just to give you a flavor of some of the more significant groups and people at the time who were issuing statements on this question in the 60s and 70s, and finally to note how contemporary black American politics and culture are still intertwined with those of the Palestinians. So first, how did I get interested in this? Well, um, I do teach a course on the 60s in America uh, at a liberal arts college in Central Virginia. And it was doing some research into uh, a memoir by a member of the Weather Underground who mentioned that when the Weather Underground had broken Timothy Leary, the great LSD advocate, out of prison, that he went to Algeria and then flew to Beirut, quote, to meet the PLO. And I thought, well, now, I've been decades involved in Middle Eastern history and all my life a participant and observer of American history, and I've never heard of this. Then I read that Malcolm X had visited Gaza. And one thing after another, and I suddenly realized there's this entire story of the interconnectedness of the black freedom struggle and the Arab-Israeli conflict, the 60s left in general, and the Arab-Israeli conflict that I don't find in histories of the 60s and I don't find in histories of the Arab-Israeli conflict. And one thing led to another, and here I stand before you. So. Let me first look at the black power wing of the black freedom struggle and start with another story. 
On September 4, 1964, an Egyptian government car departed Cairo and headed east, crossing the Sinai Peninsula and continuing across the hot desert before finally arriving in the town of Khan Yunus in the Gaza Strip. One of the passengers in the car was keenly aware of what it meant to be an exile like the Palestinian exiles living in Gaza, and that was Malcolm X, who passionately fought for the freedom of blacks in America who lived themselves hundreds of years and thousands of miles from their own ancestral homelands in Africa. Malcolm X had already been in Arab Palestine. Um, one of the things I found in my book is that he had actually been in East Jerusalem very, very briefly in July 1959. But when he went to Gaza, he spent two days. He met with the Egyptian governor, uh, assistant, a man named Mustafa Khafaja, Khafaga, if we're going to be Egyptian about it. He uh, prayed in the main mosque with Munir al-Rais, the mayor of Gaza. He visited Palestinian refugee camps. He issued a press conference and returned to Cairo and wrote a very stinging article in an English-language paper called the Egyptian Gazette called Zionist Logic. He wrote this shortly after he uh, met with the newly created PLO and its first leader, Ahmed Shkheri. And in that article, Malcolm X wrote, quote, did the Zionists have the legal or moral right to invade Arab Palestine, uproot its Arab citizens from their homes, and seize all Arab property for themselves, just based on the religious claim that their forefathers lived there thousands of years ago? Only a thousand years ago, the Moors lived in Spain. Would this give the Moors of today the legal and moral right to invade the Iberian Peninsula and drive out its Spanish citizens and set up a new Moroccan nation where Spain used to be, as the Zionists have done to our Arab brothers and sisters in Palestine? After his assassination, Malcolm's own identity and connection with the black freedom struggle and the Arab-Israeli conflict continued in that a little-known follower of his named Ethel Minor ended up working for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And in August of 1967, shortly after the war, SNCC issued a newsletter article that roundly condemned Israel and hailed the Palestinian struggle. This came as a thunderclap to both black Americans and the wider liberal to left American public. Blacks were supporting the Palestinians. How dare they? Uh, language was used about pro-Soviet dupes, anti-Semitism. The fact is that SNCC's article reflected a growing trend within the black power movement that later saw other SNCC activists, such as Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, and James Foreman, all of whom supported the Palestinians, to some degree publicly, to some degree privately. This brouhaha continued the next month in September 1967 when the National New Politics Conference in Chicago, black militants insisted that an anti-Israel plank be adopted, much to the horror of mainstream liberals and leftists, uh, including Martin Peretz, who actually funded the conference. The Black Panthers, particularly starting in 1969, also took up the mantle of black power pro-Palestinianism in a quite visceral way. Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, D.C. Cox, Eldridge Cleaver, David Hilliard, all well-known figures in the Black Panther Party, all supported quite ardently the Palestinians. 
D.C. Cox once said in March 1970, for example, quote, the Palestinian liberation struggle stands in the vanguard of the struggle against the Zionist menace that plagues the people of the entire Arab world in general and has usurped the national rights and freedom of the Palestinian people in particular. The Black Panther Party unconditionally and firmly supports the just struggle of the Palestinian people and their war of national salvation against the lackey state of Israel and its imperialist backers. Quite a statement. Eldridge Cleaver, in a statement that probably was written by his, his wife Kathleen, but nonetheless said something similar. Quote, the struggle of the Palestinian people for their freedom and liberation from U.S. imperialism and its lackeys is also our struggle. We recognize that if the Palestinian people cannot get their freedom and liberation, neither can we. Intimately connecting the two struggles. The black arts movement, names such as Amiri Baraka, Don Lee, who now goes by Hakim Adabuti, Harold Cruz, Hoyt Fuller, all wrote of their support for Palestinians in their prose and in their poetry. Even outside the black arts movement, men and women of letters such as James Baldwin and Shirley Graham Du Bois also hailed the Palestinian cause. And in 1970, a black-owned press here in Washington called Drum and Spear Press published a book co-edited by Edmund Garib, who I just saw out there somewhere, entitled Enemy of the Sun, Poetry of Palestinian Resistance that contain poems from noted Palestinian poets such as Samih al-Qasim and Tawfiq Zayyad. For their part, however, more conservative civil rights leaders, the other side of the black freedom struggle, had a quite different stance. Roy Wilkins of the NAACP, for example, was quick to condemn SNCC for its newsletter article issuing a public statement even though he himself had not yet read the article. He not only faulted SNCC, but suggested that it was becoming both un-American and anti-Semitic. Quote, if the text is as reported, as I said, he didn't read it, SNCC is openly following the Soviet line in the Arab-Israeli matter. In addition, by its reported attacks upon Jews, it is following the age-old hate line. It is a sad development that young Negroes seeking to overcome the injustices suffered by their race should employ against the Jews the same hateful distortions and lies that have been used for 350 years against their own kind. Similar such roundly pro-Israeli statements came from the likes of James Farmer of Kor, Roy Innes of Kor. Interestingly, Wilfred Usury, who was the national chairman of Kor, briefly pushed the group in a pro-Israeli direction. The National Urban League and... Whitney Young, sometimes derided by black power advocates as Whitey Young, offered one of the most stinging rebukes of SNCC in the summer of 67, remarking that the newsletter resembled the Nazi party's attitudes toward the Arab-Israeli conflict. Yet of all the conservative civil rights leaders who most championed Israel, by far and away the most fervent and active supporter of Israel was Bayard Rustin. And let me talk about him with another story. It had seemed like a good idea to Baird Rustin at the time. By mid-1970, the 58-year-old socialist, pacifist, labor advocate, and civil rights activist had participated in some of the most famous campaigns and events of the civil rights era, including being the one who planned the March on Washington in 1963. But he was also a passionate supporter of Israel, called by some, quote, Israel's man in Harlem. 
He thought that placing a strongly pro-Israeli advertisement in the New York Times and the Washington Post, signed by dozens of prominent black Americans, would go far in counteracting hostile black power attitudes toward Israel and in the process would help frayed black-Jewish relations heal themselves by showing the Jews that not all blacks supported the Arabs. He added at the final end, despite his pacifist background, a statement urging President Nixon to supply state-of-the-art military aircraft to Israel. The ad engendered a host of responses. American Jewish groups were thrilled. Others, notably black groups, expressed visceral hostility. Some black power advocates were livid for what they considered Rustin's Uncle Tom groveling to gain the approval of Jews. And at least two of the signatories, including a member of Congress, complained the text was not what they had agreed to sign. He weathered the criticism, but later in life admitted that perhaps the sentence about the sale of, gun of weapons to Israel had been a mistake. Why was Rustin so passionate, uh, so insistent on demonstrating the bona fides of black Americans as good, loyal supporters of Israel? Some of it, people who knew him said, stemmed from his own identification with Jews as fellow sufferers. Others, though, clearly stemmed from his own political transformations. The man who famously in 1965 said that, that blacks need to move from protests to politics, work within the system, with the labor unions, with the Democratic Party, with progressive Jewish Americans. And clearly this safe and sane reformist attitude, I think, is in particular what guided his attitudes toward Israel and his uh, because he was viscerally anti-black power to begin with, let alone their statements about Israel. I might add that in response to that newspaper article, that December, uh, a group of black Americans calling themselves the Committee of Black Americans for Truth in the Middle East put a strongly negative, hostile ad against Rustin and against Israel in the New York Times. So we had a, the dueling... Uh, op-ed, or the doing ads in the New York Times. That second ad managed to get 56 people to sign it, including famous black power figures like Robert F. Williams, uh, Ella Collins, Malcolm X's half-sister, Albert Clegg, the minister from Detroit, poets like A.B. Spellman and Earl Ofari, um, and a host uh, of others, including black feminists like Francis M. Beale and Maxine Williams. And then we had in the middle Martin Luther King, Jr., Typically, the storyline one hears today is that King was solidly behind Israel. It's actually a bit more nuanced. The Arab-Israeli conflict, indeed, was a headache that King didn't need. King himself was no stranger to the Palestinian suffering. He had been to Jerusalem and the West Bank in March of 1959. In fact, while he was there, he became ill and was treated by an Armenian doctor born and bred in Jerusalem who's still around, named Viken Kalbion of Anira fame. And Kalbion told me that he was called quickly, you know, Martin Luther King is here, go, go to his hotel. He had not yet received the Nobel Peace Prize, but he was a well-known figure nonetheless. And Dr. Kalbion went to the YMCA hostel there in East Jerusalem, and King and his wife were there, and he treated them, and he said, as I got up to leave, King said, please sit down. We'd like to hear the Arab side of this story. Now, Dr. Kalbion, while ethnically Armenian, had grown up, he was fluent in Arabic, he was essentially a member of the Palestinian community. 
His, he personally had been a refugee from 1948, leaving a very nice home in West Jerusalem. Um, and firsthand from a refugee, King and his wife were told the story of the Palestinians. Dr. Kalbion told me he later arranged for a lunch uh, where King could and did have lunch with eminent Palestinians such as Anwar Nusebe and Ruhi al-Khatib. So King was no stranger to the Palestinians and the injustices that they had suffered. And yet in the summer of 67, the SNCC newsletter, the new politics convention in Chicago, prompted him to issue a statement on behalf of his group, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, entitled Anti-Semitism, Israel, and SCLC, a statement on press distortions. King very carefully, for the remainder of his short life, balanced his public assertion of Israel's right to exist. He was always very clear about that, but whenever asked, he always linked it with about as strong a statement as he was willing to make on the Palestinians, which was, Israel has a right to exist, but the Arab world is mired in poverty and needs development if Arab feelings are ever going to uh, subside about Israel. It's hardly a strongly pro-Palestinian statement, but King clearly, from his own personal experience there, knew enough about what was animating Arab anger at Israel that whenever he spoke on Israel and his right to exist, and he was clear about that, he always linked it to forward movement on issues relating to the Palestinians. That was Michael Fishbach, author of Black Power in Palestine, Transnational Countries of Color, speaking at the Jerusalem Fund for Education and Community Development in Northwest D.C. on December 4, 2018. And that will do it for today's show, the last of three featuring unheard voices for the full hour. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, partner with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On the Ground Show. And we're also on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. The music we played during the break was Feel by Kendrick Lamar. Our show theme is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.